Hello and welcome to Redeemer Kingsville Sermon Series, taken from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Kingsville, Maryland. Well, we come to the first of what will be three testimonies ending this chapter. And naturally, we would expect to start with John the Baptist. He's already been introduced to us in verses 6 through 8. You'll recall there that John was introduced as a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, John has already told us that he was not the light. But instead, he came to bear witness about the light. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. You see, John has already taken care to introduce the Baptist, this one who had been ordained, had been set aside by God, we see in Luke, for this very purpose. To demarcate, to locate the one who was coming from the Father. This very word. This eternal word incarnated, about whom we spoke last week. Nonetheless, there's much enigma about this character. Why exactly does he wear, as we see in the Synoptic Gospels, camel hair and eat locusts and honey? Why does he eschew normal company and society in place of the wilderness? What, in fact, gives him the authority to baptize, to take water, And just spread it on people. What is he trying to say through these actions? There's much enigma around John the Baptist. And those who come to see him as they are introduced in verse 19. Would have less information presumably than we might in relationship to John's origins. The divine origins that had been revealed to his father Zechariah. To his mother Elizabeth. A baby born in her barrenness and old age. And so because of this difficulty, because you have a figure who is proclaiming the baptism for sins, proclaiming that Israel prepare themselves for the coming of their Messiah, understandably, the religious leaders that are in Jerusalem want to identify and understand who this man is and from where his authority originates. So we see at the beginning of verse 19, they're they're going to test his testimony. They're going to witness his witness. They want to report to truly identify and understand this man, the Baptist. So they send priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask about him. They come from the Jews. And here, most assuredly, they're coming from the religious leaders that are located in Jerusalem. It would be their authority. It would be their right to shepherd the flock in their midst, in Judea, in the south of Canaan, in the south of Palestine at this time. It's their responsibility to do so. Jesus will actually question them in some of the synoptic gospels. He will ask them who gave them their authority to take up that position of instructors and teachers and shepherds of Israel. And where their authority originated, and he will place it next to his own. But in this case, it's understandable that those who have been tasked with protecting the spiritual and even political well-being of Israel, the Sanhedrin, those men that consist of elders, that consist of priests, 
aristocracies and Pharisees, essentially all those who have positions of authority and prestige in the land of Palestine. It is understandable that they would send an envoy to find out who is this man that is causing such ruckus and such stir on the outskirts of the territory that had been entrusted to them. So they send priests and Levites. There's a reason that they send these particular individuals. These individuals were actually tasked with teaching the law. They would have been experts in understanding God's Old Testament prophecies and what they instructed about the coming of the Messiah, the signs that would anticipate his arrival, and the code of conduct, the things that God's people would need to do in preparation for his arrival. They were experts, in other words. We see that at the time of Nehemiah, when the people had strayed from the law, and they no longer understood or even knew what God's command was to them, that it was the priests and Levites who rose up to instruct them. It was the same at Josiah's time, when after generation upon generation, God's people no longer observed the Passover, no longer even had the law in their midst in order to recover their faithfulness to the standards that God had laid out to them in his scriptures. It was the priests and the Levites who took that responsibility upon themselves to return Israel to the ways of the Lord. And in this case, they're trying to do due diligence as well. So they come from Jerusalem, commissioned by the religious leaders there. And they say, who are you? Who who are you? You dress like a prophet. You adorn yourself with camel hair. You eat bugs and honey. In other words, you don't have normal cooked food that you would expect in society. You've made a purposeful choice to live apart from the normal functions and houses of society in place of the message that you're proclaiming. Who are you? By what authority are you doing these things? You see, John had been baptizing, and we'll get to that a little bit later, but John had been baptizing with water. This was a call to God's people in Judea or Galilee or all who called upon the Lord from the nation of Israel, whether they were local or had been dispersed around the diaspora. John was calling them to repent of their sins. He was alluding to an event. He was calling them to repent. I'll talk about that event in a bit. But he was calling them to repent. At this time, you might expect to see similar repentance going on. Israel had fallen far from their original condition of faithfulness. They had had foreign oppressor after a foreign oppressor come over them. And time and time again, they had gone astray after other gods. So it's no wonder that they might repent. It's no wonder that this call might come out. But when they did so, this personal repentance would oftentimes be followed with a personal washing. We see this actually happening happening at communities about which we know at the same very same time as John. As a matter of fact, some of us will be familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Those documents that were found in the 20th century that are sectarian documents. It reveals to us a community that lived east of Jerusalem, a place called Qumran, that thought that they were preparing themselves for the imminent arrival of the Messiah. And so they had to remove themselves from society. They had to make themselves right. They had to purify themselves in preparation for the coming of the long-anticipated Christ. And one of the practices that they did daily 
in order to represent that repentance that they had and that preparation for the reception of the Messiah is that they did daily ritual washing with water. Each of them would take water and they'd wash themselves. And that was meant to symbolize personally that they had repented of their sins and they had prepared themselves for the Christ. But notice that they were the ones doing the washing. And in this case, John the Baptist is the one doing the baptizing. He is the one taking the water and he is the one casting it on these individuals. And so these leaders want to say, who are you that you feel entitled to, that you have the authority to take what should be or possibly is a personal act of repentance and devotion. And instead, you have taken it upon yourself to apply it to individuals. In other words, you have taken our job. You have taken the job of the religious leaders in Jerusalem to identify sinners, to call them to repent, and then declare their sins forgiven as they put their faith in the Lord. By what authority do you do these things? If you're doing it, you must be somebody important. You must have authority from somewhere. So they say, are you the Christ? They want to know if he is the long-anticipated Messiah. Notice what he says. He says, I'm not the Christ. And so they ask him again, what then are you? What then? Are you Elijah? You see, it had long been expected that Elijah would precede the Christ, that he would be the one that would anticipate the coming of the Messiah. We know the history of Elijah. Kiddos, what happened to Elijah at the end of his life? Yes, I did. He didn't die. That's right. He went straight on a chariot into heaven, indicating that he had transferred from this realm of the physical to the realm of the spiritual. And because he had an unnatural end, the expectation from Scripture that we even see was that this very same Elijah would return to anticipate the coming of the Christ. In other words, his prophetic role was not done. He had something more to say to God's people. He also preached a message of repentance, you remember, under bad king Ahab. Remember, there's a lot of bad kings of Israel, but one of the worst was Ahab. And so he also had come preaching this message of repentance. But he had one more job to do. This message of repentance was meant to anticipate and to usher in the Messiah. So they wonder, if you're not the Christ... If you are not the Messiah, the one that we've been expecting, then perhaps you are Elijah. You, if, you're, if you're baptizing these people, if you're saying the same message as Elijah, and you have the authority to declare washing and cleansing through this water, then you must be somebody important. You must then be Elijah. And notice what John says. He says, I am not. I'm not Elijah. Now Jesus will go on to reveal that John actually is the second Elijah. See, John himself didn't quite fully understand his role at this time, and we'll pick that up a little bit later. Nonetheless, he says, I am not. And notice how his response gets a little bit briefer. So they say, well, you're not the Christ. You don't have his authority. You're not Elijah. You don't have his authority. So you must be the prophet. And look, he says, no. His response escalates in this regard. No, I'm not the prophet. This is the prophet that Moses anticipated in Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is the prophet. This is the expectation that one would come to lead Israel from their sin, from their waywardness, from their iniquity. 
into the ways of the Lord. This long-awaited prophet, signaled by Moses, would actually be greater than Moses. He wouldn't just be any individual. He would actually supersede the Old Testament covenant lawgiver. Had there been anybody greater than Moses? The one who was able, who was called the most meek men of any who had ever lived, who actually got to see the very back of the Lord, whose presence he was allowed to enter time and time again, unlike any other individual that had ever lived. And this very Moses had promised that one would come who was greater than him. So if he's not the Christ and he's not Elijah, he has to be this prophet, one greater than Moses to have the authority to tell people to repent for the forgiveness of the sin and then to apply the sign of that repentance to them with the authority to do so. And notice that John says, no. So even then, he's careful, right? His testimony is based in truth. He's careful to say that I'm not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet. He's careful to understand his role fully that's been given to him, which is, as he says from Isaiah chapter 40, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You see, John understands that his role, first and foremost, first and foremost, is to testify to the Lagos, is to testify to the word. It's not necessarily to be a prophet in the sense that the anticipated prophet that Moses described. It's not even necessarily, as he understands it, to be this great incarnation of Elijah. And it's definitely not to be the Messiah. Instead, John is here to bear witness to the true prophet. He is to bear witness to the true Christ. John's job is testimony. And so they continue to question him in verse 24. Now some of them have been sent from the Pharisees. So we already have the Levites and the priests. They have come from the religious leaders. But now we have this group apparently that's come from the Pharisees. This pious group who were innovators of the law. They were known for their faithfulness to the law. But they were also known to create constructs around the law. To ensure that they did not transgress them. And so they come to him. And they say, well, the priests and the Levites have had their opportunity to ask their questions. Now, answer a few from us. Why are you baptizing if, as you say, you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? In other words, they repeat that accusation of authority. To which John replies, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not recognize Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You see, John is going to ground his office in testimony. He already knows, according to the promises that have been given to him and passed on from his father and his mother, according to his own reading of the Old Testament, according to the special revelation that had been given to him by God, that his role, first and foremost, was to testify to the word, the word that has already been introduced to us, the word that will be light to men, that will come into the darkness, but the darkness will not overcome it. So these first few verses, they really demarcate who John is not. He is not the Messiah. 
But that in no way, Adam Brentzer changes the importance of his message. Because like John the Evangelist, John is here to testify to you about who the Messiah is. How he is one unlike you and me. He is unlike the priests and the Levites that come and question him. He is unlike that delegation from the Pharisees. And he is unlike the religious leaders from Jerusalem. Because he is eternal. He is so eternal that the straps of his sandals, John, is worthy, is not worthy to untie. Notice, that, no, notice here, this is what John is trying to do in this gospel. He's trying to tell us who Jesus is. At the time of John's writing, a, a disciple of somebody would perform every task that a slave would. If you had chosen to follow your master, you committed yourself to do everything that he asked of you. But there's one particular thing, amongst a few others, but there was one particular thing that this master could not request from you and expect you to fulfill. He could not ask you to take his shoes off, or in this case, to untie the straps of the sandals. That was actually below your station as servant, below your station as disciple. That was left for a slave alone. Somebody who you owned. And notice what John is saying. Notice that his position, as that voice crying in the wilderness, it has no boundaries. His testimony is one who is completely and fully and utterly in service and slavery to the one that will come after him. Who ranks before him. And so when he sees Jesus in verse 29 coming toward him, one apparently that he had not recognized up to that point, but who assuredly he knew. I mean, John had to have known Jesus. They were cousins after all. It's not a big place. Probably knew him. He had probably, I mean, can you imagine the nature of the relationship? They're not that much different, right? They're only about a year apart. He had to have seen Jesus in their own familial interactions. He probably saw him at the very least, when they traveled to Jerusalem for feast days. Here's that Jesus. Never does anything wrong. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine what he would have been like? He always speaks. He's over there in the temple. You know, and he's teaching people that are decades beyond his age. He has insights into God's word that nobody else has ever seen. He's beautiful and lovely and kind and gracious. He's everything that I'm not. <laughs> you know? He had to have known that, but he didn't recognize him. He didn't know him for the Christ. See, his testimony at that time wasn't complete. It wasn't full. That when he sees Jesus coming toward him in verse 29, he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He identifies Jesus. And notice the way that he does so. He calls him the Lamb of God. Where is he getting that imagery from? Where that term? It's actually kind of a strange term if you think about it. For John himself, how would he know that this lamb was meant to be sacrificial in the sense of taking away sins? I mean, that is what John the Evangelist is going to reveal to us. That this Paschal lamb is going to be the one who's going to bring cleansing. See, John is going to baptize with water. He's going to call upon people to repent of their sins and for that to be reflected in the symbol of water. But this one, Jesus, is going to baptize with the Spirit. 
He's actually going to accomplish that task that John only hints at, that John only prepares his people for. But why the Lamb of God? Why the Lamb? As a matter of fact, at John's time, the Lamb was really devoid of all of the sacrificial expiation. In other words, the taking away of sins. People knew it in some sense from the Paschal Lamb for the covering of sins based on their Passover sacrifices. But to associate the Messiah with the Lamb of God was not actually a very well-known concept in Second Temple Judaism. More likely and more popular at that time in some of the literature that was produced is the Lamb of God was actually a symbol of judgment. Did you know that? The Lamb of God was actually used in various Second Temple literature to explain God's judgment. And it seems ironic, doesn't it? It's just a little lamb, right? How can a lamb in any way bring judgment? Nonetheless, there are various ways and means by which the authors of that second temple period demonstrated that that lamb would bring judgment. He would actually come and he would judge both God's unfaithful people, but also those nations who had not turned to God as he had been revealed in the Old Testament church in Israel. And this actually accords with what we know about John elsewhere. John is going to call God's people, such as the Pharisees, to repent lest this brood of vipers be winnowed in fire with this winnowing fork. So John is actually saying, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. In other words, he's saying he's coming to judge it. He's coming to remove it, to wipe it from the face of this earth. That is what I have come. That is my testimony, first and foremost, is to identify the judge from the Lord who will come and judge sin. Hence, you need to repent from it, lest you fall under his wrath and his fire. That seems to be the most natural connection we could have with the Baptist. But the irony of that, the great irony of this passage is that John the Baptist doesn't fully understand his own role of that voice that is crying out in the wilderness. You see, that voice originally in Isaiah chapter 40 is calling for God to consider returning his people from exile, to make straight the path from the place that they are going to suffer for their sins so that they might return home to God. He is that voice telling them to repent lest they receive that same exile all over again, that same judgment that came to their predecessors for their sin. John is saying, repent from your sins lest we as a people return to exile for our iniquity and faithlessness. But what John the Evangelist is trying to tell us is that this Lamb of God is not one that necessarily only comes in judgment. But this Lamb is a slain Lamb. This is the Lamb that will be depicted in Revelations chapter 4 and 5 as a Lamb that is slain and killed, whose body lays open, bleeding, to reveal that His judgment comes first and foremost on Himself. It's an amazing truth that Jesus will reveal to John when he's languishing in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, tell me, I've I've given so much for you. It was my calling from birth to go into the wilderness, to take up this prophetic role, to announce to God's people that they need to repent and return to you, to testify, to bear witness that God was working anew in Israel. After all those years of silence, Are you the one? Do you remember this event in his life when in prison he languishes, soon to be for the axe? And Jesus reveals to him, 
Jesus has to reveal to him at that point that I'm not the one in the way you think I am. That I'm this Lamb of God who's not come to establish a new kingdom in the way that everybody expects. I've not come to exalt Israel to first amongst the nations, powerful in military might and political power. I'm not that one. Instead, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by becoming sin itself. You see, this is the reason that the one who was before John the Baptist came, this eternal word. This is why he was incarnated, so that many might become sons and daughters of God. It was actually to postpone God's judgment and to bring many into his family so that they might escape it. And so John gives further testimony about him. As I have seen the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Because he had received the call that the person on whom the Spirit descends remains. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. When we think about that dove descending on Jesus, and when we think about the identification that John gives that he is the Lamb of God, Don't we see how necessary it is that the Spirit would come upon him? John says that his very role, all of that call to repentance, all of that work that he did in the wilderness, all of the baptizing that he engaged in, all of that was meant to identify Jesus, to have that vision. The other Gospels will tell us that's the vision that Jesus recounts, but John recounts it here, to have that vision of the dove alighting upon Jesus. Now I asked this in Sunday school, Does anybody remember what that dove probably signifies? Yes, Liam. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit. Can you think of an Old Testament connection where a dove is particularly powerful as a symbol of that? Tell us. Ah, that's right. That's probably the first and foremost. And as a matter of fact, various Jewish tradition at this time also associated with that with another type of creation type of creation that we even saw in Sunday school in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 like a dove the spirit hovered over the waters not touching its chicks but just hovering and protecting but in the same way we see in Genesis chapter 9 chapters 8 and 9 with that dove one thing we see with that dove and what it represents is a new creation that's what that dove is saying that's what that dove is representing That Jesus himself is being demarcated by the Lord so that he might bring new creation as the Lamb of God into this world. The next nine chapters or so in this gospel is going to reveal this Jesus to us. Even as these first few, John the Baptist, and then these followers, these other disciples of his who will follow Jesus, and then Nathaniel, even as they are going to testify to the truth. We must not forget what the truth is. It's the truth that this Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This Lamb of God brings new creation. That which was fallen, that which was broken, that which was in risk of going into exile will be made right. It will be made new. Not through judgment on those people, but through judgment on the Lamb upon whom the very favor the very spirit of God 
remains. And so this is the question that John the Baptist wants us to answer now, even here today in Redeemer Kingsville, all those years from now. This testimony is before you. This testimony is before you in the way it was before John. It was before, it is before you in that it had been revealed to John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that he would be the one to anticipate the Messiah. It has been revealed before you by this very one John who has said he had seen the dove, the Spirit of God, descend upon Jesus. He had identified the word, the logos, the one who had come before him, before him, even though everybody knew as they sat around and knew John that this man Jesus had been born after him. His testimony is before us. And now we ask the question, will we receive that? Will we receive the testimony of John in its truth and its veracity? Will we acknowledge that this indeed is the word, the Logos, who came to overcome the darkness as the light? To take many who were sons of darkness and make them sons and daughters of God, children of the Most High. We ask that question of ourselves this morning. Do we believe this testimony? Because John will continue to put it to us again and again on the lips of others through the signs of Jesus and through Jesus' words itself. Do you believe the disclosure of John that Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, uniquely anointed by the Spirit to fulfill that task and to make you new creations if you would believe in this Jesus.